A trusted colleague of mine, a beloved friend, had a dream about me the other night, and she shared this dream with me. In it, she said there was a huge celebration, and all of our friends were there. She named each one. My friends and she, they were all huddled around me, and they were screaming, Hooray for Lee! She said she remembered being filled with a real and deep happiness. It turns out that this dream celebration was being held in my honor because I was leaving the church. And my friends were there to welcome me into freedom. We talked... (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. It's a dream. Uh, We talked at length about this dream... And in truth, we talked about it more in terms of reality than fiction. See, my friend, she's leaving the church. Ordination in the United Methodist Church no longer feels to her like a call from God. It feels like a burden instead. And to be clear, I support my sister as she walks away. Away from being a participant and her own oppression, and trying to be a part of a system organized to make her feel unworthy because of her sexuality and disempowered due to her blackness. The institution of the church, well, it stopped being a community that held her, so it is important that she leaves. I grieve the loss of her in this institutional church, even while I do honor her path out of it. As most of you know, I have experience in leaving the church, but my departure was not one that I made by choice. It was altogether different from the choice my friend is making to follow God out of the church. When I came out as a lesbian at 17, my pastor told me that there was no longer a place for me in my home church. I had to leave. And it was pretty awful. The church had been birthed in order to provide a place for whites and blacks to worship together. The fight had been a bitter one. And it was part of this church's DNA to think of themselves as inclusive and progressive. This same vision of communion had fueled the next fight in their history as that Baptist congregation worked against the norm of their spiritual and cultural surroundings to ordain women as deacons. So it was with great shock and utter surprise that I saw the lines of my beloved community drawn, but this time against me. Now, I have thought a lot about this over the years, and I think that the congregation had been stretched just about as far as they could go in that moment. They couldn't handle another debate, another split, another holy battle for what God's vision was for them. And so I saw the doors of my community close in front of me. The pain from that experience and the years of healing that it required afterwards, it makes it impossible for me to take belonging lightly. I take it very, very seriously. 
I think it's a holy act. Living in community is almost never easy and almost certainly disappointing at times. But it is, as Christians, what we are called to do in this life. Be the body of Christ. Travel with folks along the way of Jesus and to share the covenant of one cup. So we better take our community seriously. We better look at the foundation of who we are to make sure that we're standing on the intention that God had for us. So we find today in the lectionary the exciting and rich narrative of the Ten Commandments. I already apologized to Megan for the dry reading. And when you think about it, the Ten Commandments, yeah, it's, it is dry. It's certainly not as interesting as what just came before it as we read about the Israelites being held in bondage, about Moses showing up on the scene and the plagues, or the escape across the sea. And it's not nearly as interesting as what comes after the law is given, when the folks worship a golden calf and leprosy comes out. It's really cool. So the Ten Commandments feels a little tepid, a little dry in comparison. But... It's the moment for the Israelites. It's the very moment when they get to be real clear about what is essential. It is the instance where God and the people, they draw the lines. They set the values and they determine what their community is going to live like. Israel decides... We can't go on as we did before. God delivered us. They were slaves no more. And their identity as being the delivered, being the free, that identity would shape their lives from that moment on. How would they reorient their lives to center on that monumental shift? God's great gift is freedom. And the commandments offer this over and over in ways that first might appear to be restrictions. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol. We hear those statements, and they're so strong, and they're so clear, and we can kind of feel their weight. But imagine them instead as statements of liberation. A noted scholar helps this shift in our perception by explaining that the phrase, thou shalt not, or you should not, you will not, puts each revelation kind of on the defensive, right? So instead, he explains, maybe it's truer to the sense of the phrase for us to think this, for you, there will be no other gods. Yeah, there are other gods. We learn this. The Israelites know this from experience. There are other altars to bow down to. We know this too. But for the Israelites, those altars have been set before them by oppressive powers, exploitive leaders, and corrupted kings. God is saying, no more. The only altar that you will be set in front of is the one that is in front of God. The God who gave you life, not death. The God that set you free. It's an emancipation of the body and of the spirit. And for God, 
It's non-negotiable. You cannot go back to being slaves, and you will never treat anyone else as if they were either. This is the gift. This is the gift of freedom, and it's non-negotiable for the Israelite community. Last weekend, I had the great privilege of officiating at the wedding of two of our young adults, Chrissy and Jono, who are on a mini-moon right now, so you can't find them in their pew. And it was a beautiful night. It was a, a really meaningful one. So lovely that I will forgive them the fact that it was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I had to get there from the Bronx. Okay, forgiveness. But the wedding took place at this really hip and trendy hotel, way too cool for me. And, and when I got there on Saturday afternoon, it was bustling. I mean, another wedding was wrapping up in the courtyard where we were about to go in. And then I realized that there's another one upstairs in a hall. So I was trying to make my way to Chrissy to have a few moments in prayer before things got underway. And I jumped into the elevator, which, as it turns out, had these two people in it. A young man was to my right by the buttons, and a woman was to my left. Now, I am not sure what gave me away, but the woman leaned over to me, and she asked, Are you the rabbi who's officiating the couple in the courtyard? And I said, Well, the pastor, but yes. Um, And she said, Oh, 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 right, right. Well, I'm the rabbi who's doing the wedding upstairs. And I said, oh, and then I stopped, totally perplexed, and I said, how in the heck did you get out of Yom Kippur to do this wedding? And she visibly cringed, right? And she screamed out, I know, don't tell my mother. And I laughed, and then the young man who's by the buttons, he had overheard all this, and he turned to us and he confessed, this is the first year that I've never fasted. I'm just going to tell my parents I did it. So it was a really funny moment where I sort of received the confessions of my stranger friends. I gave them a little pastoral care, and then I went on to do my business of getting these two people married. But I thought of it later in relation to the issue of community life, about how we decide what is foundational, essential in keeping us together as community, and what can be let go. Now, I have to say, and I know that for most of my Jewish colleagues and friends, Yom Kippur observance would be among the things that you do not let go of. For others, as I learned in that elevator, maybe not. But it made me think about our community, about our community here, about what we cannot let go of in an effort to live into God's vision for us. And I think it's important for us to consider for ourselves what we might think of as observance and ritual, the things that we like to do to follow Jesus, but are willing to expand or rethink or even possibly change to make our community one of radical welcome for all to unite as community, if you will. And I think it's equally, if not more important, to define what we cannot change. Not when we're shaping our lives around the community that God had in mind, when God delivered us from sin and slavery and only asked that we continue that work in relation to each other. Where do we hold 
the line. This week, I stole one of Kay's books, Against the Commandments. Um, I stole the book. Well, I mean, he was done reading it. It was on the table. It was too intriguing, so I took it home. And I only intended to read this one chapter, but I ended up finishing it. It's a book written by David Gushy, whom some of you may know is a professor of Christian ethics and the director for the Center of Theology at Mercer University. The book is called Still Christian, Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism. Now, I realized after reading it that you could just read the chapter titles and get a pretty good sense of his journey. Oh, well, I'll share them with you now. Looking for a place among the liberals. Finding a voice while not losing a soul. Every liberal's favorite evangelical. And then every evangelical's least favorite liberal. You get a sense, right, uh, about the ways in which Gushy has been trying to find a community that fit him for years. And almost each time he finds one, he ends up eventually being an outlier of it. He experienced the lines of community drawn to exclude him. That is, if he held fast to the firm vision of where Jesus was calling him to be. Now, he talks in specific about the redefining of his faith after spending time with Christians who have been rejected by their churches due to their identities and sexualities. So he writes, It has been a humbling honor to be so often in the presence of gay Christians and ex-Christians driven out of the church in the name of the Bible. My sense of solidarity with them has only deepened, while my resistance to rejectionist and bystander Christianity has only intensified. For the first time in my life, he writes, I have come to a personal experience of what it is like to have the full force of white, straight, male, Christian orthodoxy used against you. It has certainly deepened my sympathy for others who have long had just that experience. He argues, and I agree, that there are pivotal moments when moral and spiritual declarations, they just have to be made. And then once declared, they must be held. I believe we're in one of those times. A time when our institutional and denominational church is bowing down to the altar of unity, elevating it over God's declaration of freedom and justice. A time when our national context is so confoundedly divided that instead of remaining in that uncomfortable truth, we rush towards unity and step over what has made the divide to begin with and what demands working repair. A time when our fear drives us to make an idol of even the concept of togetherness. For us here at St. Paul and St. Andrew, we need to hold fast to the determinations of those things that we will not go back on. We must be a community that remains unified, but never does so on the backs of the most vulnerable. We've been delivered by God, and we're called to right relationship with our neighbor. The entirety of the second tablet declares it so. We, not, we can't hold on to something, be it power or privilege or ignorance or distance, when that very act of holding 
denies somebody else their freedom. With the emphasis these days on unity as the only answer to discord and division, we have to guard ourselves. We are so divided, it's true. But the solution is not necessarily that we come together and lay down the vision we believe we are called to by God. To unify with others, would we ever, ever consider silencing our women in churches or pulpits? To unify with others, would we ever consider swallowing our rainbows and reversing the work of 25 years in this congregation to open its doors to our queer siblings? To unify with others, would we ever consider taking back our God-led proclamation that black lives matter? To unify with others, would we turn our backs on even our fellow citizens who are only trying to stay alive in what has become more than a natural disaster, but a national one? Sometimes, my friends, the right answer is no. Sometimes God's answer is no. We find ourselves these days in what has been called by Cornell West a spiritual blackout. It is as essential a moment for us as it was for the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. It is necessary as a community to reconnect with our God and the vision of our God. With bondage behind us and God's freedom in front of us, some things have to be non-negotiable. We just can't bow down to the altar of unity when it asks us, to sacrifice our souls.